Let me say, first of all, it's, it's good to be here. Uh, we were gone for a period of time, and it's just good, <clears throat> good to be back. And it's good to be able to make it in from South Haven this morning. <clears throat> Couldn't help but thinking it was so beautifully white, and hearing him preaching about sin, and God saying, I can one-up you, because your sins will be taken away, and everything shall be as white as snow. So how beautiful that is. But, you know, before we left, <clears throat> Kevin laid out this series, and I said, boy, that's a, that sounds like a really great series. And then he said, and you're preaching on sin. <laughs> and my first thought was, huh, I guess he figures I'm a bigger sinner than he is, and I don't know more about it. But then the more I thought about it, I thought he's probably right. I've lived longer, I've sinned more, so I probably do know more about it. Then I realized it was on the Sunday when everybody's lacking an hour of sleep, and so the, I've got to preach on sin excitingly enough that you don't gain your hour of sleep while I'm preaching. So I guess that's the perk of being the lead pastor. Well, well done, Kevin. Seriously, we're going to look at uh, the four hours of sin, and that title comes from, uh, and not everybody here will remember the days, but some of us remember the days when we talked about school being the three hours, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, today we're going to look at four hours and the four hours of sin. You know, if you tell a jeweler that you're interested in buying a diamond, first thing they'll do is take out a black cloth to set the diamond on. They do that so that you can see all of the hues and cuts of the diamond and see it in all of its beauty. And in a sense, my assignment today is to lay out the blackness of sin so that we can see the diamond and the glory of grace next week. And to do that, two passages this morning. First of all, the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis, the third chapter. I'll read just the first seven verses, but I would encourage you this afternoon to read the entire chapter. And then we'll turn also to a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. First Genesis 3, the first seven verses. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then from Paul's letter to the Romans, the seventh chapter, begin our reading at verse 14. Paul is wrestling here with the law and, and the sin in the flesh, but also the forgiveness and grace we have through Christ. Verse 14, chapter 7 of Romans. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, 
but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The grass withers, as Kevin said last week, and the flowers fade. But the word of our God lives forever. Let's pray. Spirit of God, descend upon our hearts. Wean them from earth through all their pulses move. Stoop to our weakness, mighty as thou art, and make us love thee as we ought to love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hi. My name is Curry. And I'm a sinner. And it's high time I got together with you fellow sinners in this Sinners Anonymous. Or perhaps it's Sinners Not So Anonymous. It's time we get together and we be frank and talk. Because if we don't, we will never fully understand the state of the world, the state of our souls, the state of our church, and we'll never be able to experience the glory of grace next Sunday. Sin has to be front and center. And so we need to deal first with the reality of sin. That's the first R, the reality of sin. Now, in Eden, in Genesis 3, we are confronted with a truth that there is a right and a wrong. If we affirm that God is the creator and he is the giver of life, then we need to accept the fact that he has the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong. And that he knows what is best for us to make us in peace and in harmony with him and our world. Now one of the clues here is the the word Eden in Hebrew means delight. So the Garden of Eden was a garden of delight. God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed for their well-being and enjoyment. Similarly, God has made us. God knows us. He knows what we need to live in full enjoyment. He knows what we need to make us grow into who He made us to be. He also knows what activities and what attitudes tend to hamper and break all of that. So if God calls something sin, it's because He loves us. We don't necessarily need to understand why he called some things right and some things wrong, some things good and some things bad. We just need to accept the fact that he said it, and it's for our good. It's like the young boy who wants to ask his dad, Daddy, is it true that God created everything with a purpose? He said, yes, son, that's true. Why do you ask? The little boy said, well then, why did God create poison ivy? And the dad said, well, I think, son, it's because he just wanted us to know there are some things we're just to keep our hands off of. How true that is. It's for our good. 
When God says this is sin, it's for the good of the human race. Now let me be clear at the outset. Sin is rejection and rebellion against God. Doesn't matter the size of the sin. Doesn't matter the length of the sin. Sin is a rejection of and rebellion against God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. God gave us boundaries, we crossed them. God makes rules and we break them. We don't like to be told what to do and what not to do. For example, how many of you have ever seen a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch, and then touched? Oh, come on, there's more than two of us. Some of you need to learn this morning how to confess, that, that's for sure. <laughs> All right? that's, that's, that's a good one to begin with. Or mom says to you, don't you dare cross that line, what do you do? You put the toe across, right? We don't like to be told what to do and what not to do. We want what we want when we want it. And we especially want those things we cannot have. We want to draw the boundaries. We want to make the rules. We want to be God. A funeral director once told a pastor that amongst the unbelieving population, Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, was first place as a song to be sung at funerals because of the phrase, but best of all, I did it my way. Why are we so selfish, so self-centered? Paul looked at the culture and he said, this is from Romans 8, from Romans 11, the first chapter, beginning of verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Now that phrase, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, points us back to Genesis 3. I love how the Living Bible paraphrases that scene. So the serpent came to the woman. Really? he asked. None of the fruit in the garden? God says you mustn't eat any of it? Of course we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we are not to eat. God says we mustn't eat it or even touch it, or we will die. That's a lie, the serpent hissed. You'll not die. God knows very well that the instant you eat it, you'll become like him, for your eyes will be open. You'll be able to distinguish good from evil. And we buy into that philosophy because we do not take God seriously, or at least seriously enough. Pastor Kevin did a beautiful job last week of laying out the authority and the truth of God's Word. And questioning God's Word leads to doubt in God's character, which leads to rejecting His authority, which leads to idle worship, which leads to a downward spiral of destruction. The Bible's picture of humankind is clear. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and lost the standard of right and wrong. We've made our own directions, our own decisions. We've lost any sense of what is true. And the result is a world that is in rebellion and a culture that is far less than what God intended it to be. 
there's a reason. The Bible gives repeated warnings. Deuteronomy 4.2, Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Proverbs 30, verse 6, Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Revelation 22.19, near the very end of Scripture, And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Whenever, whenever we disagree with God's design for human sexuality, it's sin. Whenever we reinterpret God's word to fit our desires and our thoughts and our longings, it's sin. Whenever we disobey God's word, it's sin. Whenever we say that the word is inadequate and not sufficient in and of itself to address any particular issue, it is sin. Whenever we say, I think what God really meant to say is, it's sin. When we seek to do our own will, it's sin. When we try to rename sin to call it a a mistake or or a God-given impulse or feeling, it's sin. Whenever we say our church order and constitution are enforceable but our theology is not, it's sin. We do not know better than God. Which brings us to the second R. We're impacted by the reality of sin when we see the results of sin. Sin has consequences. I think I've mentioned it before, but I I go to it again. Deuteronomy 28 spells it out. First two verses, God says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then He lists all the blessings that come. And then He comes to verse 15 and He says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm giving you today, All these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then he lists all the curses. In other words, God says very clearly, obedience leads to blessing, and disobedience leads to cursing. God's just like a parent who says, if you don't stop, you're going to get grounded. There are consequences to our actions. Genesis 3, in fact, portrays four separations that are caused by sin. First, there's a separation from ourselves. We can't live with ourselves, starting in verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Verse 10, it says to God, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. They experienced shame all of a sudden. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? Sinful eyes lead to guilt and shame. We find it hard to live with ourselves. Nobody said to Adam and Eve, by the way, you should feel guilty now. They felt guilty immediately. They knew it, and so do we. Separation from ourselves. Second, the separation from God. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. Now remember, It tells us that they walked with God in the cool of the day. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees 
of the garden. Instead of welcoming God's presence, now they went and they hid from God, tried to get out of his sight. Some of you may remember a time when you were out with friends, were out on a date, and you had been given a curfew, and you got home late. Did you run into the house and say, Hi, Mom and Dad, I'm home! Or did you try to sneak in and not get caught? Looks like a few of you have done that before. Mm-hmm. You see, we try to hide, don't we? We're not anxious to see God. We're, we try to get away from God so He can't see us. We try to hide. So we stop attending church. We stop reading our Bible. We stop praying. We, we stop meeting with friends. But we cannot hide our sin from God. We're destined to live with the pain of our sin. Verse 12 points out the third separation, separation from others. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. They blamed each other and stuck up for themselves. It's like the older sister who blames her brother for breaking the vase even though she did it because she didn't want to be punished. She wanted him to take the punishment. I'd much rather you be punished than I get punished. Separation from others. And fourthly, there's separation from the world itself. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They no longer lived in harmony with creatures and with nature. So sometimes it snows hard on a Sunday. Sometimes there are storms. Animals can be our enemies. Dogs can bite us. And women experience intense pain during the time of birth rather than ecstatic joy. The ground produces weeds faster than it produces flowers. It's all a consequence of sin. We can't sin and avoid these consequences because sin carries the seeds of its own punishment. Sin brings its own consciousness. Guilt is an inborn accuser. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say something similar to after committing adultery or having an affair. It seems so good at the time, but, but later, guilty, we stand naked and ashamed. It's like a fish that swallows the bait. No one has to say, by the way, you're hooked. The fish knows it as soon as he swallows the bait. That's the truth the psalmist affirmed long ago. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Remember what Cain said to the Lord when the Lord banished him for his sin? My punishment is too great for me to bear. He couldn't live with himself. And remember Judas. He betrayed his Lord and he went out and he hung himself. He couldn't live with himself. Our world has fallen so deeply into the mire of sin that many people are simply now insensitive to sin. And one of the devastating fallouts is public education without a value base. A public education system that is quite willing without parental knowledge or permission to dispense condoms, to talk about safe sex, to encourage abortion, even transgenderism, but is not willing to talk about the moral issues involved in sexual expression 
nor the damage caused by the deadliness of sexual promiscuity and is unwilling to talk about fidelity in marriage and celibacy and singleness. I'm struck by how Paul describes the consequences of sin in Romans 1, starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Because of this, here it is again, God gave them over. Some translations say God gave them up to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, here it is again, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They, ha- they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul is saying, God finally said, I've had enough. Have it your way. And he took away his hand of protection and said, suffer the consequences. But here's the tough truth. The third R. We need to grasp the recognition of sin in our own lives. As Paul proclaimed in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. You and I are sinners. I'm reminded of the young man who was applying for a job, and a question on the job description on the job application was, Have you ever been arrested? And he put no. Next question was a follow up to the first, and he didn't realize that he didn't have to answer it. And so when it said why, he said, I guess it's because I never got caught. <laughs> but you know what? With God, we've been caught. I want to bring back this morning an old theological term from a Reformed heritage. Total depravity. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you may never have heard of it. Let me explain it. Have you ever bitten into an apple and found a worm? How in the world did that worm get there? An insect laid an egg inside the apple blossom. The apple forms... And later the worm is hatched inside the apple and tries to eat its way out. That's a description of sin. The Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 7 says, Where did this corruption of human nature come from? And the answer is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, whereby our human life is so poisoned that we are all conceived and born in the state of sin. It means, in essence, we are born with a spiritual sin gene inside of us. Psalm 51, verse 5, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked go astray from the womb. Liars wander about from birth. Romans 5, verse 12, You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. 
That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. See, in other words, it's not that that we sin and become sinners. It's that we're sinners and so we sin. I love how the, the old preacher Charles Spurgeon explained it. Everything that is evil lurks within the heart of everyone that is born of a woman. Education may restrain it. Imitation of a good example may have some power in holding the monster down. But the very best of us, apart from the grace of God, placed under certain circumstances which would cause the evil within us to be developed rather than restrained, would soon prove to be a demonstration that our nature was evil and only evil, and that continually. You may take a bag of gunpowder and play with it if you care to do so, for it is quite harmless, as long as you keep the fire from it. But just put one spark of fire to it, and then you'll discover the force for evil that was talent in that innocent-looking powder. You may tame a tiger if you begin training it early enough, and you may treat it as if it is only a big cat, but let it once learn the taste of blood, and you will soon see the true tiger nature flashing from its eyes and seeking to destroy all that come within reach of its cruel claws. Then he says, in a similar fashion to that, sin is originally latent within every one of us. Take a look at this ad. I know it's a little blurry. Don't try to read what it says. I'll read what it says underneath it. It's an ad for a cologne, and it says, a cologne for the other man lurking inside you. That's a creepy picture. I would never, ever, ever buy that cologne. But it struck me that that's really our picture because there is evil lurking inside of us, calling us to be someone we are not. How many times haven't you said, did I do that? Why did I do that? Why can't I keep my promises? Why can't I keep my resolutions? I swore I'd never do that again. Agnes Allen cleverly put it, I should be better, brighter, thinner, and more intelligent at dinner. I should reform and take some pains, improve my person, use my brains. There's a lot that I should do about it, but will I? Honestly, I doubt it. Same thing Paul said. What I do is not the good I want to do. The evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. We are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like the moon, we have a dark side. Well, we were grocery shopping down in Florida. I saw a young mother with a young son who was supposed to be seated in the cart, but he was screaming at the top of his lungs and he was trying to stand up. She said, no, no, sit down. And he started to stand up all the taller, so she took him by the arm and, with motherly love, set him back down again. And with that, his other arm came up as ready to swat her, so she grabbed that arm, and then his other arm came up to swat her. At that point, I had to turn away because I was smiling. I didn't want her to think I was laughing at her, but I was thinking about this sermon that I have to preach on sin, and it occurred to me, who taught that little guy to be that way? You suppose his mother had a session with him one day and said, now, when we're grocery shopping, if you want to be dotty, here's what you do. I mean, do you think somebody snuck into his bedroom late at night and taught him all of that? For that matter, your parents here, you can recall at least one time that one of your little darlings 
did something that caused you to say, where'd that come from? I didn't teach him that. Well, now we know. It came from Eden. It came from Eden. To sin, oddly enough, is to be human. But having a sin gene is not a license to sin. Just because sin is in us, just because we have an inclination or an inbred tendency, doesn't mean it's okay to follow it. To say, I was born this way, it must be okay. Or God gave me this feeling, God gave me this impulse, it must be okay, is sin. Because we are not to live by impulse and feeling, we are to live by what is right and wrong. The day will come and we will stand before God just as Adam, and He won't say, why are you doing what you're doing? He's going to say, what did you do? What did you do? Near Watsonville, California, there's a creek named Salsa Poetis. Salsa Poetis is Spanish for get out of it if you can. Apparently the creek is filled with quicksand. And the story is that in the early days of California, Mexican labor fell into the quicksand. And a Spaniard riding by on a horse saw him and yelled out, Salsa Poetis, which of course wasn't a whole lot of help. But the creek got that name. You know what? We struggle in the same way. Sin swallows us up and we can't get out of it by ourselves. We can't do it on our own strength. Make no mistake about it. God is very concerned that people sin. But He is more concerned with people who think they haven't sinned or haven't sinned very much. His strongest words were against the righteous who thought they were so good. Sinning does not exclude you from God's grace. Sin is not the end. It's simply a reminder of your need for divine intervention. Jesus wants to spend time with you. It's what confession is all about. Which brings us to the fourth R, the remedy for sin. As A.W. Tozer put it, until we believe that we are as bad as God says we are, we can never believe that He will do for us what He says He will do. The closer we get to the Lord, the more we see our sin and the more repulsive it becomes to us. Remember what happened when Isaiah saw the Lord lifted up on a throne? He wrote, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. His response to being in the presence of God and seeing the Lord clearly was, I'm a sinner. Grace can't fill our hearts unless they are empty. If we think we're strong enough, if we think we can work our way out, there's no room for grace. Unless we admit we are powerless against that which holds power over us, there is no room for the Spirit to flow through us. Our sense of inadequacy is what brings us to Jesus. And so it begs the question, how can we be delivered from our depravity? First, there's a two-pronged power provided. One prong is the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 I have treasured your word in my heart 
so that I may not sin against you. Familiarity with the Word of God is a detriment to sinful behavior. The more time we spend in the Word, the greater our love for God and His offer of grace. There was a teenage girl who was a devout Christian. Went out on a date with her boyfriend. They double dated. And one of the four eventually said, hey, why don't we go to a party? And it was a party where they knew there was going to be drinking and drugs and other illicit activities. And the young lady said, no, I'm not going. And if, if you're all going to go, then please take me home first. One of the other kids said, what's the matter? Are you afraid your daddy will hurt you? She said, no, I'm afraid I'll hurt my daddy. Familiarity with the Word draws us to love God more and we fear breaking His heart. The second prong of that power is the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 1. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The Spirit of life in Christ like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. When God lives and breathes in you, and He does as surely as He did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With His Spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. That's why Peter says we are partakers in the divine nature. I'd love be able to shoot baskets and play basketball like Steph Curry. My namesake, by the way. <clears throat> if you know anything about Steph Curry, you know that there's never been a jump shooter like Steph Curry. He can shoot from anywhere on the court, make it look so easy, and make it one after another, after another, after another. And I can try to envision myself doing that and just popping him from all over the place. Can't you? No, you can't see me doing that. I can't either. And I could study all his game film all I want to, but that's not going to do it for me. But suppose somehow they could t- extract something from him and his DNA and put it in me and give me the power to do it, then I could do it. But that's just not going to happen. But with the Holy Spirit, we have a whole new power, a new law within us that enables us to reach upward, to get up out of the quicksand, to listen to God's higher voice. 1 Corinthians 15.22 As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 6 verse 12 That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. There's a power provided. But there was also a price paid. Calvary is proof that sin has greatly troubled God. Has it troubled you? As soon as we begin to diminish sin... We begin to demean our Savior because Jesus died to free us from our sin. Romans 5.18. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. 
But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God, put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. So C.S. Lewis calls us home. Good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get near the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get, must get close to or even into what causes them. They are not the sorts of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to their spray, it will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. The challenge this morning is to take control of your life. Get close to Jesus. Get beneath the cross. Put yourself in the position of receiving his life so the one who began a good work in you can bring it to completion. This morning is your opportunity to claim the promise of Jesus. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We want to give you an opportunity this morning to get closer to Jesus. To prepare you to experience the glory of grace next Sunday. The end of each row of pews, there's a red piece of paper. It's like who's ever closest to them to pass them down to others in your row. I'm going to ask you to write something down. Perhaps this morning you've been convicted of your sinfulness and you want to confess your sin and be renewed by His Spirit. Name it. Write it down. Perhaps... Perhaps you need or want to get close to Jesus so you can ask him to show you your sin so you can confess and be renewed by his spirit. Just write it down. It could be that like Paul, you're, you're wrestling, trying to do what is right, but having difficulty doing it, trying to avoid what is wrong, but having difficulty doing it. Just write it down. And maybe, maybe you just want Jesus to show you what to lay down and what to pick up, as the Lenten prayer we're praying every day says. And maybe you just want to get close to Jesus and thank Him for paying the price and ask Him to clean you again and renew you by His Spirit. Whatever it is, write it down. And when you're done writing it down, I invite you to come and put it in the bowl here in the front of the sanctuary. Then you can return to your seat or you can remain standing here And when everybody's had an opportunity to do so, we'll have a closing prayer asking for forgiveness and prayer dedication. So Sarah begins to play dutifully and softly in the background. I invite you to spend these moments writing down whatever it is God is putting in your heart. It doesn't need to be fancy, lengthy. It could be one word. Just express whatever it is you're feeling and then bring it forward and place it in the bowl and come. Come to the foot of the cross. For those online, I would encourage you to find a sheet of paper and write it down. Hold it next to the computer, 
next to your tablet, whatever it is, as an act of bringing it to the foot of the cross. Let us take these moments and deal with our Lord and Savior. Write it down, bring it forward, be ready to pray. Create in us pure hearts. Put a new and loyal spirit in us. Do not banish us from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from us. Give us again the joy that comes from your salvation and make us willing to obey you. Then we will teach sinners your commands so they can turn back to you. Lord, prepare us this week for the glory of your grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.